Good afternoon. We're still covering the environmental beat for this Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 28th. I'm your host, Anastasia Glova. Today's guest is Indergo Klani, who will be talking about his new book, The Improving State of the World, Why We're Living Longer, Healthier, More Comfortable Lives on a Cleaner Planet. Indoor has worked with federal and state governments, think tanks, and the private sector for over 30 years. He's represented the United States at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and in the negotiations that established the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. After Al Gore's documentary on global warming, An Inconvenient Truth, took home an Oscar this past weekend, it's a good time to talk to Indoor about what's really happening to the world around us. Please tell me how you measure well-being in your book. I measure it by a variety of objective measures. I do that because I think it's really useful to have measures that can be verified. I use measures like life expectancy, infant mortality, prevalence of malnutrition, level of education, per capita income, and things like that. Using these measures, what were your findings? Essentially, I find that the state of the world has improved quite a bit. Initially, when industrialization started 200 years ago in the United Kingdom, there was a period of time when things became worse because of urbanization, which brought with it things like unsafe water, poor sanitation, and all kinds of diseases that were spread because of the overcrowding that used to occur in big cities. The other thing was, at that time also, there just wasn't enough food all the time to feed everybody. Therefore, people's defenses were weak to begin with. But after the problems were discovered and solutions to them had been devised, since that time, we see that there's been a general improvement which has continued to this day. What specific improvements seem to have occurred? I think if you look at life expectancy, for example, it used to be that in 1900, the global life expectancy was 31 years. Today, it is 67 and rising. And if you take a look at infant mortality, it used to be that more than 200 infants out of 1,000 never saw their first birthday. Today, on a global basis, it is down to about 53. With respect to hunger, for example, in 1971, 37% of the population of developing countries didn't have enough to eat. They were chronically hungry. Today, it's down to 17%. Of course, there's room for improvement, but going from 37% to 17% is a big improvement, especially considering that the population has actually increased by 83% in the interim. What are the causes behind this significant improvement in the quality of life? The proximate causes are economic development and technological development and trade in goods and services, but most importantly, in ideas and knowledge. But the underlying factors have more to do with the fact that the world seems to have stumbled on a web of institutions which drive economic and technological development. And these institutions include things like property rights, free markets, rule of law. One of the most important factors is that we have developed systems for solving problems that are based on science and technology, and also we are open to technological change, which is different from having the technology. We've had technologies in the past, but because we have not been open to using them, we have let those opportunities pass us by. DDT in Africa is a really good example. The other things that we have is we have institutions that are used to develop an educated population. We have public health services which we didn't used to have. All of these work together to give us higher human capital, which is what we need if we want to advance technologically. We also have 
institutional support for research and development, which ensures that we do indeed create the technologies. And finally, which I've already mentioned, is that we have freer trade in ideas and knowledge. These improvements, however, are not uniform. They're anything but, in fact. So why do some nations continue to lag behind? I think the major reason is that they have not yet adopted the institutions that are driving what I call the cycle of progress. This is a cycle of progress that gives us both economic development and technological change and so on and so forth. And there are various cycles within this cycle of progress that essentially push and pull civilizations forward. Let's take a look at economic development, for example. If you are wealthy, you can create the technologies that are missing. At the same time, you can also afford these technologies. These are two separate processes. So you have wealth-creating technology, but by the same token, technology also creates wealth. So that's one cycle. The second cycle has to do with health and wealth. If you are wealthy, you can buy better health. But if you have better health, you're going to be more productive, and therefore you'll also be more wealthy. So this is a second cycle. And there are other methods by which economic development advances both technology and together they drive the cycle of progress forward. For example, if you are wealthy, you can afford a better education, you can afford R&D, and so on and so forth. All of these things work together to move everything forward. And it so happened that the developed countries of today happened on these institutions that help propel the cycle forward. And that's what's missing in many of the developing countries which have not advanced as much. In fact, one of the problems that we see is that sub-Saharan Africa had progressed then the late 80s, they started falling behind. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the institutions weren't well developed and they had poor governance. And then on top of that, they got hit by a couple of things, one of which was not something that could have been foreseen. That was the AIDS epidemic. The other thing was malaria was resurgent. That was quite foreseeable, but they allowed themselves to fall victim to malaria because They rejected the technology of DDT that was available and cheap. And because of these factors, since the late 80s, their life expectancy has been dropping in many of those areas. Which should probably improve because DDT use has now been approved. That's right. That's right. And the other reason why things would improve is that the developed countries were also hit by HIV AIDS. But because they were wealthy, they managed to devise the therapies that would make that less of an epidemic. And if people contracted it, people can still get by. It used to be that if you had HIV AIDS, it was a death sentence. It is no longer like that. At least you have therapies that can combat it. In the United States, for example, in three years, deaths due to HIV went from the high 40,000s to below 20,000. And that was because the U.S. was wealthy. They developed the technologies to deal with it, and then they were able to afford it to put it into practice. Whereas The developed countries, especially sub-Saharan Africa, while they know about these technologies, they cannot yet afford them. I want to ask you a little bit specifically about the environment. Uh, If you watched the Academy Awards this past Sunday, you might have caught that the Oscars have officially gone green. It does seem that we lag behind on the environmental front. So besides greening the Academy Awards, what can we do to address this issue? Well, I'm not sure that greening the Academy Awards is actually going to solve anything, except it's going to make a lot of people feel good. With respect to the environment, we find that the richer countries are also the cleaner countries. But if you look at the history, I find in my book that developing countries are ahead of where developed countries used to be at the same level of economic development. 
I'll give you a really good example. The United States was, I think it was the first country to do anything about lead and gasoline. It didn't do anything about lead and gasoline until 1975, at which point the U.S. had a per capita income of $16,000. India and China started introducing lead and gasoline in 1997, before their per capita income was even $3,000. You know, I'm using the same value for a dollar. They're real dollars adjusted for purchasing power parity. So that is progress. They are phasing out lead and gasoline before they got to even one-fifth of our income level. And this is actually what you get from trade in ideas and knowledge. Uh, In 1913, the United States used to have a per capita income of over $5,000. Infant mortality was about 100 per 1,000 live births. And life expectancy was 52. By 1998... India had per capita income of about $2,000, and China had barely broken 3000 Yet, India's life expectancy was over 60 years, and China's was over 70 years. Whereas infant mortality in India and China were below 65. China was something like 34 or 35. I don't remember the precise number. And that is progress again. And the major reason for this progress is India and China learned from the lessons learned by the United States. You've got to clean your water. You've got to have good sanitation. You've got to make sure that people are well-fed, and so on and so forth. And all these things, which actually are not, a lot of these are not tangible things because these are ideas and knowledge that have been transferred from developed countries to developing countries. And that is the single most important method of advance that we have. The other things, of course, we have to be open to technological change. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.